This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined as always by David Hughes. Dave, how's things? Yeah, very good. Thank you, mate. Uh, enjoying the football and looking forward to talking about it today. It's probably the best summary. <laughs> well, you, you've let the secrets out, mate. Uh, so this is, yeah, this is going to be a, a bit of a different episode, mate, for analysing and for listeners, because there's there's virtually nothing happening on the club front, whereas, at least from a Liverpool perspective, you know, the whole country is talking about England and talking about Euro 2020. We have done the odd little Euros podcast in the past few weeks that went down fairly well. And given England's quite historic win over Germany, it's going to be a bit of an analysing England episode, really. Uh, we'll see how we go with it. We'll talk about you know what Southgate's doing, performance numbers attached to the tournament, the Germany game, whether England can win it, all, all those bits. Um, where we can, we will pick up the odd little Liverpool theme you know, the likes of Trent, but in terms of Henderson being the only Liverpool player in the squad and he's barely even played, so it's it's a difficult one to talk about from a Liverpool perspective, but we'll see where we go with it, gauge the reaction, hopefully people will respond well. Um, But yeah, I mean, we can't look past the Euros, can we, Dave? No, no, definitely not. You know, they don't come around often and it's been a fairly entertaining tournament, hasn't it? Especially this week, there's been some really good matches. Um... So yeah, it, it it seems like the most obvious place to you know have a chat about it uh, because we don't get these opportunities often. So um, yeah, I think it's a good idea, and hopefully people enjoy it. So I assumed you tuned in last night, Dave. I did. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> well, thoughts. I mean, it's, it's the first game that we've had to to analyze really in the past couple of months. So mm. general thoughts on how the game went. Yeah, yeah, feeling a little bit rusty. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, look, I thought it was a strong England performance. Um, I found it again. I don't know if you felt like this, Josh. Maybe people at home as well. I found it again really difficult to predict beforehand. Uh, the, the different kind of scenarios that could have played out all seemed very viable to me. Um, you know, I could have saw a Germany win, an England win, which it turned out to be. Could have quite easily seen it being level after 90 minutes. It just felt like a really difficult one to predict. Thought Germany started quite well. England looked a, a little bit nervous, but maybe that's you know in terms of the emotion uh, attached to the game, home crowd and stuff. I suppose that was to be expected upon reflection. Um, but you know, beyond those first ten minutes, I, I thought England settled into the game really well. Um, the, the, the shape that they were in seemed to work quite well for them. And over the course of the ninety-minute game, I thought they were the better side and people tried to downplay this Germany team which I understand and I do think it was smallish margins but you know for me I still think in, in, uh, Germany had a lot of good players out on the pitch you know they've they've punished teams in this tournament um, but England made them look quite ordinary and yeah it was, a, it was a decent performance and a really really good result Yeah I agree with you I think when it, specifically when it comes to predicting the game I, th- I found that to be quite difficult obviously the whole country immediately reacted to the, the team selections that were released we will touch on team selections in a, in a sec 
But yeah, it felt like it could, it could go a number of different ways. I'll be honest, I know he was using a back three. Um, I thought it'd be more of a back five on the day. I thought just the way the match would play out, given that Southgate was a centre-back himself in his playing days, I thought England would largely be without the ball. And I thought they'd have very little interest in having it outside of counter-attacks, really. But that wasn't really how it played out. England were quite on the front foot, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Um, and in terms of looking at Germany squad and, and, and stating that it's it's not what it was, I think it's maybe not what it was when it comes to, you know, the whole German national side being at its peak with with um, the coach in particular trying to win his first tournament and all that sort of stuff. But if you actually look at the side, you know, Thomas Muller, Leon Goretzka, Timo Werner, Tony Cruz, Kai Havertz, Joshua Kimmich, Matt Hummels, Antonio Rudiger, Manuel Neuer, and then Matthias Ginter and Robin Goosens were, were arguably like wildcard additions compared to previous years. But there's some serious players in there, plenty of Champions League winners, uh, some of which have just won a Champions League in the past couple of weeks. Um, and I think the bench, again, Felix Strong, Emily Chalmers on there, Elkai Gundahan. Leroy Sane, Serge Gnabry, you know, it's a serious squad. Um, so when, when it comes to playing it down a little bit, I understand it, but I understand a little bit actually, but for the most part, that's a strong side. That's a, if you, When I looked at the starting 11s before the game, you know, the whole you're only as good as your players type thing, I looked at the two back threes and I think England had the edge for me. I looked at the two front threes and I thought probably even there. And I looked at the midfields and I think Germany probably had the edge. So for me, it was it was a fairly even game, but I think the way England performed, it deserves to go through for me. Um, mm. Yeah, that was a solid performance. One of the best England performances I've seen probably. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, Trying to think of a better one. Well, certainly against the top nation. You know, obviously there's been bigger wins. Um, he was the performance against the, the Spanish, wasn't he? A few a few months back, I think we mm. beat the Spanish something like three 0 was it three one? Yeah, yeah, there was that there. Um, but I think given the magnitude of this game, it was really good. Um, had a little nose at the average positions of the Germany team afterwards, and it was quite surprising to see how how deep they were. Um, you know, kind of. You know, I, th- I think it would be an exaggeration to say penned in, but just not moving as freely with the ball and not getting as forward as, as freely as they'd like. And I was trying to think about the game back in my head and wondering if maybe that was a an intention, if maybe that they intended to let let England have a little bit more of the ball and you know kind of utilise the likes of Werner and have it on the break. Um, as a couple of times, you know, they did nearly score off it, but. I think I don't think it was. I think it was just how the game played. I think it was just how how England played. Um, you know the kind of the shape that they ended up going with in in the match. How Southgate adjusted it slightly, and I think Germany did struggle to to perform at the same level that they had done in previous games. I don't think they were as efficient in the wide areas, which obviously going into the match was was something that could have been a big problem. Something that they've they've done quite well in other matches, uh, but they just didn't seem to be able to do do it with the same efficiency against England which I do believe is as a result of their performance as opposed to necessarily Germany not being not being at the best 
So in terms of the team selection, you know, this is something we have to touch on because if you was on Twitter before the game, you know, it was a, it was a fire where really weren't it? The whole house was on fire. Um, mm. And England started the game. I, I, I won't list the full start in 11, but on the bench, Phil Foden, Mason Mount, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, Jordan Henderson, Jack Grealish, Julie Bellingham, Reese James, all on the bench. Um, and it was generally perceived as defensive. And I, I think in this one, that's hard to look past it, but it, it was defensive for me. It was a defensive selection. It was a conservative selection. And I think, funny enough, Southgate actually said after the game that if I pick that team and it doesn't win, I'm dead. Basically, I think they, they were his exact words. Um, so, you know, I will always do everything I can to, to understand why a team selection is a certain way rather than just reacting immediately. But this one did look really defensive. Um, I'm not sure what your thoughts on it were. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard not to get caught up in all that. The difference is I keep my mouth shut, you know, until after the game. I wait to see how it actually plays out. Um, I can understand some reservations people had. But I think a lot of this stems from, and it's been the case for a long time, but specifically with this group, you know, you've just list, listed some top players who weren't even on the pitch, on the bench. Um, but there's a case to be made for a number of these players in this group that they could be the key man, the star man. You know, we did a podcast on Alexander Arnold, didn't we? Saying how he could be, you know, the key, the key cog in in the England squad. But the problem is, and we actually alluded to this on that podcast. You know, there's so many of these players that it could be made. That point could be made about, and I think. There's, there's only a certain way you, you can't appease every player. You can't build the team around every player. It doesn't work like that. I think when, as a result, key players will will not play. Um, or if they do, they won't play. It won't be played necessarily to funnel to their strengths. And this kind of this all works in some sort of concoction where it ends up causing a bit of infighting. And you know, because people are sitting at home thinking, well, no, I'd I do it this way, so it's getting the best out of X player, or you know, I'd, I'd be looking at bringing X player in, and you know, using him as that the, the main source of creativity or whatever like that. And I, I just think that's what we're seeing with the team selection because the group is so good. It, I guess this is international football in general, isn't it? But you know, you got such really good players playing specific si- systems at club club level. They come into the in- international setup, and things are different. But I think the main difference between, say, England and other small nations is that they only have maybe a handful of top, top players in, in that group. So you know who the starters are going to be and then you build the side around them. Whereas, as I said, with this England team, there's about 15 players who are, on paper at least, kind of top, top level elite players. And I think that's why you end up seeing so much criticism because you know people obviously have their own ideas over who they would prioritise out of that group. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the the starting lineup in attack in particular, I think Kane obviously starts. You know, there's there's, there's no real way around that one. He's he's the captain, and um, it's just going to happen. There's no point in even debating that one. But I think when it comes to the two roles behind them, it really is hard to appease fans in particular. You know, I think Raheem Sterling has to play. His his recent record scoring for England is ridiculous, and up until yesterday's game. 
he'd scored all of England's total of two goals in the tournament. The all came from Sterling, and he scored, he scored the opener against Germany. So three of England's four goals so far have been from Sterling. So you can't really take him out. When it comes to Saka, he played really well in the last group game. And he's left-footed. The only other player who can match him for that left-footed profile, I think, in attack is Foden. And I think just based on the group games, I think Foden just made a bit bit, bit less of an impact than, than Saka did. Um, and then if you look at the likes of Grealish, you know, plenty, plenty of people will come out, of that, come out of that game and say, you should have started Grealish. Um, and I get those points, maybe you should have, but I don't always think you can look at the impact of a substitute and just straight up suggest that he would have done that from the beginning of the game. You know, the match scenario changes as the game progresses, players get tired, and Grealish is a really, really useful option to come on. He's really, really creative and open play. England didn't really have that at the time, which is largely why I think he might play in the next game, actually, because um, I think open play creativity is going to be a bit more essential rather than counter-attacking. So I think Grealish might play in the next game. But it's just a difficult it's a difficult balance to strike, really. Um because despite the selection that he picked, England, I would say, performed in quite an attacking manner. Certainly without the ball, you know, they were quite assertive without the ball, proactive. I'd say they performed as probably a more attacking unit than Germany did. Um, but the whole team selection thing, it's it's really difficult, really difficult to get to get right. Um, because on paper, it does look like you've picked the back five and the whole two defensive central midfielders thing and then you've got three players who are going to essentially score your goals on the break but it, it, it is a difficult one to cover because there's just so many different takes and so many different ways you can play it but in a tournament the, the, the biggest thing is, is to win the game and that's what Southgate's done despite picking that, picking that starting level mm, Yeah, I think a lot of it does actually centre around one player you just touched on there, Grealish you know, he's, a, he's obviously whatever you want to call him Elite player, Maverick, everything. He's it, it's so bizarre seeing a player of his stature, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to a club that who a really big club who were like, but it's so bizarre seeing a player of his stature playing for Aston Villa because you know he seems like he's the kind he's fast become like England's poster boy. Um, and I think there is some irritation that he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, kind of play every game, but I think he's one of those players that. He can have that effect off the bench. I think it's not always a guarantee that he will, you know, if he starts, there's no guarantee that England are going to score score three. I know he made stuff happen yesterday, but as we've just touched on, things can impact that, you know, tie legs or adjusting to one system, adjusting certain players, and then a completely different player comes onto the pitch in the form of Grealis, who can do so many different things uh, and trying to adapt to that in picking, picking the ball up in those, in those areas, you know, those kind of like, what would you say, half space areas, I don't, which, whichever you prefer, whatever term. And, um, but yeah, I think a lot of the frustration actually stems from him because he everything's so fever pitch around him. I wonder, Josh, if if he would have started in place of, I don't know, say say Sterling or whatever, uh, would, would there have been as much uh, as much as the kind of reaction that we saw? Um, 
I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. That would have been harsh on Sterling because I think Sterling's been really good. But as I said, I just feel like a lot of this stems from Grealish um, and the and the impact he's having at the moment. No, I would agree. And I think if you look at the, the whole front three thing that Southgate seems to be using, you know, well, he used it in the Germany game, I suppose, in other games, he's been using a little bit of a front four where he would make some mount playing as a bit of a, a number 10. But if you're, if you're using the three like that, Kane is fixed and Sterling, certainly based on his form at the minute and his impact at England, is fixed. So you've kind of got one role there. That one role is up for grabs for the for Saka, Grealish, Rashford, Sancho, Foden. You know, that's incredible depth. Really is in attacking areas. Mm-hmm. I think England have got the best attacking depth in the tournament. Um and I think Southgate is I must admit he's he must be incredibly disciplined as a coach to not to not be tempted to just go and use them all. Um he, he, even in the final group game, which didn't really matter, it it's just it's so tempting, isn't it, to to, to just field like I know I know Mount couldn't really play, but if you if you were to field in the same sort of midfield bank behind Kane, Grealish, Foden, and Mount, it you almost feel like that's that's maybe what the Spanish would do, um, mm. but it's it's just not what England are doing. There's a bit of frustration around that, and I get that. You know, it's nice to it's nice to play attack and football, but I must admit I would have more of an issue with it at club level than than international level. Um, simply because international level is about it's tournament football. It is a different game. Um, it's not like you know a thirty-eight game league campaign. It's different, mm. and yeah. I think that's 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 what I'm going to touch on when we get to the numbers in a sec. Actually, um, but yeah, it really is a, diff- a difficult one to strike when it comes to getting the result right and managing the tournament, playing the talent that you've got. Analyzing Anfield. On the Blood Red Channel. Just because we ref- referenced his name earlier, keen for you, keen for your thoughts on on Kane so far, and obviously you, you said he was undroppable there. Is there a point where he isn't undroppable to you, or do you just play him every game? Um, <laughs> tough one. When I say he's undroppable, I mean. From the perspective of Southgate, I just cannot yeah. see him dropping him. So that's mm. why I say that. I do think he's had a he's had a bad tournament. Um, you know, there's been the odd little claim that he's not getting the service. But you know, was he getting the service at Spurs? Spurs, he was a one man attack, and he was really capable as a one man attack. Mm. I know he had Son next to him, but you could argue Son is vaguely similar in profile to the likes mm. of Sterling, maybe, and and Saka. In terms of being that penetrating runner and behind and stuff, what I think Kane has just looked to me, he's just looked really slow. Um, and I know he's already not the quickest, but just him taking the ball, you know, changing direction, getting releasing the ball, all that sort of stuff, he's just, he's just looked really tired, really just kind of like he just woke up. <laughs> um, that's probably the best way I can put it. Um, he still got that obvious quality, and I think in maybe to think it was the last group game, he showcased that a little bit more. He dropped a little bit deeper, switched the play a bit because Kane's got ridiculous passing ability, possession ability for a striker, and he's been doing a little bit of bit bit less of that, dropping deeper a little bit less. He's been hanging on there. 
the last line really almost like Vardy would. Maybe it's intentional as a, in order to create space for the number 10 types, the likes of Sterling, Mount, Grealish, all that sort of stuff. You want to stress the line maybe. But yeah, I don't think he's had a good tournament at all. But mm. given who he is, it's almost... I, I think when Southgate's mentioned a few times about you know man, managing the tournament, he keeps saying that you've got to manage the tournament. And I think it's almost not worth the, the media... Not backlash, but the, just the big media talking point, the big media response. If he was to look at Kane after two or three games and say, not good enough, I'm bringing in Calvert-Lewin. You know, I just, I, I think Southgate, when he's considering everything, I just don't think he'll deem that to be worthy, despite the fact that I don't think Kane's played particularly great. Mm, yeah, and that's one is that's for me one of Southgate's kind of best assets. You know, I don't know if we'll we'll touch on Southgate specifically, but for me, and I definitely don't want to do him a disservice because I think you know the way he switches it up to the three four three last night, and you know some of the things he's done. He's clearly a, a clever manager. You know, he he's a a good tactician of sorts, but. When I think of his, him as a manager, I don't see him as an elite tactician, but I do see him as a really intelligent top coach and a really good leader of of men of a team. Now I think he's he talks really well. Um, I think he's he's managed to create a really good balance and squad harmony, which has always been a problem for England, hasn't it? Because there's so many good players, elite players, and you've seen other teams struggle in tournaments this year. Uh, well, you have to only have to look at France following their exit. Now, to me, you, you could see that with France, and we're talking about the world champions here, by the way, under an established manager, but you could see that things weren't great there. A little a little tell for me was when uh, the penalties were coming up and Rabiot was sitting on the floor prior to them. You know, it... That to me is, as a man, I think that's quite. I don't know. That would I. I would find that infuriating, a little bit disrespectful. I'd want the squad all together, linked in shoulders, you know, harmony and things. And even before the penalty shootout, it felt like you know they were all kind of almost in fighting, and there was no real big team huddle. And they've lost that. It feels like England have had that for a long time on the Southgate, uh, and I think that's what he's been fantastic at. So to go back to your you know, the original point on Kane, I do agree. I think he's probably not enjoyed the level of backlash that came with the Alexander-Arnold decision. Um, and it, I think it would be potentially two or three-fold on that uh, at an international tournament with the England captain. So maybe that's, that is that is the reason why he's, he's not dislodging them at all. My personal opinion is I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if he was to come off at times and and maybe you'd have like Calvert Lewin or someone come in because of the profile Calvert Lewin has and what he can bring to the team. Um, but yeah, maybe there's a wider game at play there, and he's he's trying to think about appeasing what can be quite a a thirsty uh, media and English media. See, the difficult thing now is when when it comes to taking him off and stuff. As an international manager, how, how much do you consider penalties? In, in in these knockout periods now where any match can, can go to that stage it was less less the case in the groups and I think Kane actually came off around the hour mark twice I think it was 
But when it comes to this now, you have to keep penalties in your mind as, as a decision. It can't define your decision, but it has to come into it. Like I think, say for example, yesterday, at one point, Phillips and Rice were both on a yellow card. They were going to come off. One of them was at least going to come off a Henderson at one at one stage. And I think if you look at who's going to come off with the scores, maybe at nil nil. Rice takes penalties for West Ham, so I think in that situation, could that you know just very very slightly tip it to the extent that Phillips comes off as a substitute rather than Rice? And I think when it comes to Kane, given how reliable he is from the spot, he's one of the best I've seen. To be honest, it's it, it's still a penalty. And it's very far away from happening. You know, you've got to play 120 minutes of football to get to that stage. But you almost want to keep him on the field purely for that. So, you know, he's a captain as well. He's got the whole media thing behind him. He can step up in big moments. Um, natural goal scoring and all that sort of stuff. So it is a difficult moment when it comes to Kane and taking him out the team and recognising that he's in bad form. But I think Southgate is in many ways quite sensible maybe. For, for for keeping faith with them, um, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna touch on Southgate in a minute. When it comes to the the basic question of is he good, essentially, um, but at first I want to touch on the numbers because I think they're interesting. This has obviously been a very numbers analytics type podcast really over the past two years of it run. You know, a lot of our judging of Liverpool has been to do with the numbers when Liverpool suffers from bad form this season in particular. Me and Dave tried to state throughout that a lot of Liverpool's performances have been generally quite good, but they just haven't haven't really had the product in both boxes. I think when it comes to England, the numbers don't really back up England that much. So if you look at the four games they've played so far in the Euros, the XG that England have created... Against Croatia, 0.9. Against Scotland, 0.9. Against Czech Republic, 0.8. And against Germany, 1. Um, and in those games, Scotland created the same as us. Germany created 0.5 more than us. So it's only Croatia and Czech Republic that have actually created more expected goals than. And in both of those cases, it wasn't much... You know, it wasn't wasn't much at all. And when it comes to the tournaments as a whole, so shots per 90, obviously it's a bit messy because teams have only played like three games, four games or whatever. But in terms of shots per 90, England are third from bottom. The only two teams in the tournament who average fewer shots per 90 than England have been Hungary on 6.3 and Finland on 6.3. And then you've got England on seven. At the top of the list, you have Italy averaging about 19.9 shots per 90. And then you've got Denmark on 18.5 per 90. So when it comes to England's numbers, Dave, they don't look very good. And I'll be honest, if this was a club situation, if they were Liverpool's numbers or if they were Everton's numbers, I would be predicting some form of downfall in the near future. The reason I'm not is because it's not a league. It's not a 38-game um, competition. It's it's knockout tournament football when 
all that really matters is winning and the performance kind of comes into it a bit less. Game state comes into it a bit more. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, the, the idea of using numbers in the situation that we normally do is to try and, I guess, foresee, predict a little bit as to what's going to happen in the future, you know, based on these numbers that tell us that performances are X, Y, and Z, you know, which should lead to positive, negative results going forward if things proceed as they are. You look at it now and you think, you know, you theoretically... See, we, we say that, but we also say it gets to a certain stage of the season, normally yeah. at the end, where it becomes slightly, not irrelevant, because it's still always worth considering, but you start thinking, well, it, it, it's just about getting the points on the board now, you know, getting to the finish line. And if you think about it, England are potentially three games away from being champions, you know, winning the trophy. So... If you, it, I'd say definitely within a league campaign, with just three games to go, you'd certainly be at that point of it. It, it doesn't matter too much now; it's just about getting the, on the right side of the results. England are at that stage now, I think, um, and you could make the case that that that's what it's like for tournament football. Full stop. Um, it's not always the best teams who go on to win it. So, yeah, I think it's it's not a major problem. Maybe in it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to argue even over from a wider point of view isn't a major issue because tournament football is is very or international football is very different, isn't it? To club level football. Like we know Liverpool, for example, are gonna be playing in the Premier League year in, year out, you know, plus Champions League or whatever, but Premier League year in, year out, and you're gonna be facing a, a certain level of opposition every single week doing so. And international football, you have the tournament where you're probably playing the best of the world or best of Europe uh, across six games or whatever. But then either side of that, it's a little bit of a roller coaster in terms of uh, quality of the opposition, you know, because England might play this and then they'll have two friendlies against, I don't know, San Marino and Azerbaijan. Um, and then you might have another tough game and then you'll have easy games. And yeah, it just means that, you know, it's really difficult then to try and look at a long, long uh, data sample, I guess, of, of matches, you know, a two, two year and try and work out how, what it means for this England side. It's it's a lot more difficult, isn't it, to analyse. Um, but to answer your original question, Josh, I think it doesn't matter too much in this tournament. It's just about getting on the right side of the results from, from this point onwards. Yeah, I mean, in, in time of football and the whole football and stuff, you, you, you can just, all it takes is one mistake. You know, it, it doesn't take much to get knocked out of a tournament completely. Whereas in, in, in a league, you know, over 38 games and stuff, and then when that ends, you go and play another 38 games the following season. That that feels more about almost like repetitive correction, really, over the period of an extended period of time. You just get better and better doing a specific thing. At a tournament, you don't really have that opportunity. And uh, you know it is it is really interesting to look at England's performances so far, and they they don't look that good on the numbers side. They don't they don't lean that much really on the side of of probability. So in terms of shots, you know we always revert back to shots on this podcast quite a lot of the time. England haven't actually outshot a single team yet. Um, they face Croatia, Scotland, Czech Republic, and Germany, and. All of those teams, apart from 
Croatia in the first game have outshot England. Croatia took the same amount as England did. Um, and England have hit single figures in the shot department in all of those games. You know, eight shots, nine shots, six shots, and then five shots. I will say on the defensive side, it, it has obviously helped. Um, and that's kind of what England seems to be doing. England seems to be building their strength really from clean sheets. And it's it's certainly working. England haven't conceded a goal yet. When it comes to shots conceded, shots faced, there are um, about six, yeah, six teams that face or faced fewer shots on a pay 90 basis than England. But Portugal were one of them, they're out. France were one of them, they're out. And Germany were one of them, and they're out. And when it comes to expected goals faced on a pay 90 basis, England have got the fourth best defence in the tournament, apparently. Again, France were one of them better teams, and they're out now. So, yeah, it's it, it all comes back to kind of just this concept of managing the tournament. It really is kind of... Um, getting the balance right of risk versus reward and I think it's interesting when it comes to the numbers as well. You know, we've just been talking about how they play a bit less of a part when it comes to tournament football. Two absolute top tournament coaches that come to mind that don't really exhibit solid performance numbers are Carlo Ancelotti and Rafa Benitez, funnily enough. Both of them have had real success in European tournaments over the past few years. Rafa in particular is has been a big trophy winner, you know, when it comes to your way for uh, Europa Leagues, Champions Leagues and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to domestic leagues, a bit less successful. And I think a lot of that can come into the, you know, the strategic nature of tournament football and how it suits that type of manager more than a manager who's going to be a bit more idealistic almost. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, the, the kind of pragmatic aspect of it uh, leading to more success. Um, and the thing is as well, you talk about more defensive defensive orientated tactics, uh, you know, accusations that are being levelled at, at Southgate, but it's certainly in tournament football, it's a lot, it's, it feels like clean sheets and being defensively sound are a lot more important than being able to score a lot of goals. Uh, you know, if you've got to have one of the two, I think you definitely want to be more defensively steady. Um, you could make that case for in all in all kind of aspects of football, competitive football, but certainly in tournament football, I think that's important. Um, and it's it's been key for for England. Like, how many got England have scored four goals so far across four games? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's an average of one per game. Uh, not ideal from an attacking point of view, but obviously if you're not conceding at the other end, if you're defensively sound at the other end, then it's, it's enough to get positive results. And it's you know three 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 wins out of those four games and one one draw, one you know with with another clean sheet. So I'm not saying England can just continue to just keep batting out clean sheets, but it's uh, it's it's definitely integral, I think, to success and. Arguably, at tournament football, it's just as important to be. Uh, well, it's more important to be defensively sound than maybe a, a free-flowing attacking unit. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, and I think if you if you look at the England squad, um, you know quite clearly when it comes to individuals, at least I think the defense 
is maybe a bit weaker than the attack. And I think rather than playing into the attack then, because that's where your strengths are, I think Southgate seems to be, you know, given the fact that he was a centre-back himself, I think he's more inclined to think, right, we will have to cover our weakness then. And in attack, we have individuals that can just kind of do it alone almost. Um, and I think certain, certain defensive players have, have maybe benefited from that. Calvin Phillips has had a really good tournament so far. Uh, I think John Stones has been good. Harry Maguire's been really good since he come back in. And I think as well, Jordan Pickford, you know, you, you've got to give Jordan Pickford a shout. I know you've had a bit, a fair few maybe annoyances with him throughout the season, Dave, but you know, you've got to admit he's had a good tournament. I'll be honest, from from the start of 2021, he's, he's been really good and um, I'd said kind of you know, maybe in April, May, I was like, look, you know, Pickford's really been a top, top keeper for a good few months now. I know he's really unpopular with most on this podcast, but, you know, we just try and put the obvious to one side and just look at it from a football point of view. Um, you know, being a top keeper really from the start of the year. Um, but I don't think that I'd really filtered into <clears throat> mainstream media and, and you know, kind of fans who maybe don't watch a lot of, of Everton. Um, so there was still this idea that England were going with a really error-prone, poor goalkeeper in between the sticks. But you know, I, I, I actually wrote a piece on it. I was like, he, he isn't that certainly at the moment. Um, and yeah, he's gone on to, to do really well. I don't think he's the, been the busiest, but when he has been called upon, he's a uh, he's pulled off some important saves and he's just been really composed, which obviously then filters to the well. Liverpool fans know, you know, when you. When you went from Minule to Allison, the difference it had on the team and the defence, and you know, in a, in almost a minuscule scale, you've seen that with England and the performances of Pickford. Yeah, it's it's the mental side, I think, a little bit that he seems to have worked on. I, I've read the other little bit that he's he's started getting coached in that in that respect. You know, yeah. some, some sort of outsourcing or something like that. Um, and I think it shows a little bit because I I always describe them as capable of a great highlight reel but I think when it comes to reliability and um, being assured staying cool headed in pressure moments which a goalkeeper has to do at certain times he always struck me as the type of player who almost embraced the drama, the type of player who enjoyed a bit of chaos and Mm. you don't really want that on a goalkeeper but of late, you know, I agree. Dating back to his, his recent Everton form, I think he's he certainly seems to improve that, and uh, it's coincided with a change in haircut as well, which captures the uh, the importance of a decent cut. <laughs> That's it. Uh, it's slick back, and he's doing all right off it. <laughs> um, so the the big Southgate question then. So, you know, you've touched on it a little bit already, but is he good? Essentially, what what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, that you know, it's. I can only really uh, echo what I said earlier. I think I see him as a... He's clearly... I think he's a really good man-manager. I think he's proven to be... Arguably, you were talking about Ancelotti and Benitez and their proficiency uh, in tournament football, maybe, uh, you know, cup competition football, over-league football. I wonder whether Southgate is a manager made for international football as opposed to domestic football. Um, certainly is, I'll say club, club football, certainly his record would suggest that 
albeit, you know, obviously he sacked by Middlesbrough when he was a lot younger, less experienced coach. Um, but just the way he, he kind of manages this outfit, this England squad, um, how he approaches things, how he talks, everything to me just points that he's a he's a good international manager or solid international manager. He's a, he's a this is not to discredit. This is this is meant to be a compliment, even though sometimes it's used as something else. But he feels like a very safe pair of hands in that job, and in the, in many years gone by, it can be quite a volatile um, a volatile role and <clears throat> kind of specific varying characters have took it on more maybe imposing characters if you think of like Capellos and, and people like that uh, but he's come in and, and he's he, you know he's done really well no denying it now uh, if you look at his record so yeah that I think what stands out for me Josh more than his kind of tactical now which I think he does have some but it's just his, his all around kind of managing ability ability to manage players and people yeah, no, I would agree. I, I think he's spot on there. I think specifically, you know, was the way in which he communicates, the way in which he always seems to be calm and assured and respectful. Um, he seems to have good relationship with the media, which shouldn't be that much of a big thing, but in England it just is, especially for for the England manager's job. You know, the first team England managers, it's just massive. Um, I think his. His ability to, to to manage a squad, I think, is and pick a squad as well. I think is quite underrated. I think he's he's clearly steered away a little bit from the maybe a typical England approach of just fielding all your best players and hoping that it works. I think he's took a bit more of a balanced, maybe a bit more of a tactical perspective on that. You could argue, and I think it does benefit everyone really. Uh, apart from maybe the players who are sat on the bench who look like they should look like they're good enough to be starting, but I do think I do think you've got a point there in terms of him being perfect really for international management, and I think it's any club that maybe eventually wants to take a punt on him. You, it's really difficult to to determine whether he's good in that sense because of everything we've just said. It's going to be difficult at international level to to showcase really strong performance numbers to the extent that you can say, right, he's a good coach. He can get a team coached to a good standard in the league to to the extent where they're going to be competitive. Because what he's doing on international level does seem to be more strategic around knockout football, match to match, which is fine. But in a league campaign, long term, I, I'm not a fan of that approach. I think you know, Ancelotti was that Dave. Ancelotti changed week to week depending on the opposition. And um I think Rafa will do the same to an extent. And you you can get success out of that, but I, I just prefer at club level, I prefer an identity that can adapt a little bit, but just more often than not, you're establishing dominance maybe over over your opposition. And I'm not sure Southgate has, has proved that. I'm not sure he can prove it. At international level, and I think, uh, you know, given all that, I I think England can win this tournament. And I think if if they did, he comes across as very wise, Southgate. And I think he'd almost know, you know, why would he tarnish what he what he'd establish if he won this tournament? 
by going and chancing it with a club. Um, I'm not saying he won't, but it just feels like a risk he doesn't need to take if he achieves success in this tournament. Because mm-hmm. he'd be a legend, yeah. he'd, you know, he'd, he'd, be, he'd go down in history. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, put it this way, it doesn't feel like, I guess no should it, but it doesn't feel like he sees this England role as a opportunity to, yeah, yeah, and like an opportunity to open another door back into the club game. And leave he's sure that I'm not sure I agree with it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't think he'll one day maybe manage a club when his England role's finished and he's still got that itch to be in the in the managerial game. You know, he probably will go back to club level, but I think for now this is just a, a perfect role for him. One that he probably didn't anticipate um, going from kind of... It feels to me like he initially went into the England set, set up as a stopgap. If I recall correctly, it was he was under twenty one manager, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, so that's that does seem to be very much often like a a stopgap role for coaches. Uh, I recall, I think AD Boothroyd was was there for a while, and just somewhere where it managers think, with some. Go on. I was going to say, I think I think it's also a role for coaches who are essentially finished and who are at the end of the career, whereas mm. Southgate is still at that point where. His career can be what he wants it to be. Essentially, you know, he, he's still young enough to be to, to have a coaching career. He hasn't really managed all the clubs he's going to manage, and then you know went away for a one final payday sort of thing, which it maybe felt a little bit like with Allardyce or so. Yeah. Um, but I think with Southgate, you know, his career's his managerial career is being shaped now by England rather than getting finished with England. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally. I think it's uh, that's it. So he, he kind of went into that role probably with no ambition to, to go and be England manager. Comes in and ends up. Uh, I think I can't even remember if he come in on a temporary basis, but he ends up you know landing it permanently and being so far successful. Even if England were to go out this weekend, you think you know beating Germany uh, in a really big game against the semi-finals of the World Cup. You can caveat as much as you like, but they're just facts, aren't they? Um, you know, it's, he's been relative, relatively successful, um, but there could be more to come. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I definitely think the uh, the starting 11 that he picks do feel frustrating sometimes just because you want to see this ridiculous attack and talent on, on the field, really. But mm. tournament football in particular is, is a results game, a short-term results game as well. Um, you know, some people take the perspective of, like I think recently Allardyce, I think, said um, something like, when it comes to football management, and he's talking about clubs here, he said something like, results come first, and then attacking football and winning nicely can come later. Um, but I think the likes of, say, for example, Jürgen Klopp have done that the other way around. Klopp's kind of established the identity, established the style of play, and gradually, as you've got better and better at executing that style of play, then the results and the consistency consistency starts to come. Um, whereas in, in international football, you have to just, especially in tournaments, you have to just find a way to win. You have to just win. Um, and speaking on that win, I think, can England win it, Dave? You know, I suppose the big question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, uh, well, one thing I will say is I, I don't think we can get it twisted just because some big sides have got, gone out uh, I, I still think there's a lot of threats in the competition. Still, I think there's 
even the perceived lesser nations definitely have the ability to cause England problems. Uh, but that being said, you have to look at it. And if we try and look at it objectively, you know, I know we are English, but if you try and forget that, uh, and if you were just looking at this objectively, objectively as, I don't know, maybe a Frenchman, <laughs> you, you would look at England and think that you've got a really good opportunity. So, yeah, I think they have got a good chance based on who's left and what, what they can produce to, to, to actually win the tournament. Yeah, I agree. I think England have got the best squad left in the tournament um, in terms of just the options that, you've want, that you'd want depending on a variety of different match scenarios. You know, if England go a goal behind, for example, the, the players England can bring on to, to get that goal back the fact that there's kind of no injuries really at, at the moment. You know, you look at you look at Belgium for example. They've just beat Portugal, but they lost Kevin De Bruyne and Ed Nazar in the process. Mm. I don't think the long-term injuries, but they might both miss the next game, which is against Italy. Uh, you know that, that they could easily go out there. So, and then you obviously couple that with the fact that England have arguably the best draw to the final. I think. Um, I expect Ukraine to. I expect England to beat Ukraine. I'll be honest. When it comes to the semis, I must admit I'm concerned about Denmark because I think I think performance-wise, if you are looking at the numbers, I think Denmark have been right up there as as, as the most impressive when it comes to what we typically look at on analysing on field in terms of you know they've been averaging around twenty shots per game. They, they faced Belgium a few weeks a few weeks ago, and the 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 shots about. 22, 23 times, I think. And I think mm. Belgium took about eight themselves. But the Bruyne just kind of won the game on his own. Mm. Um, I think Denmark play a lot like a club team, that you, just when you watch them and stuff. So I think they could cause England a bit of an issue. Like, Yeah, Denmark won. And you think... <clears throat> uh, they've got Czech Republic, haven't they, Denmark? Yeah. Yeah, so you probably would fancy them to get to the semis. No, they are tough... I, they, they, you can see why they obviously tip to be uh, dark horses. I think we talked a little bit about them, didn't we, in our kind of Euro preview podcast a few weeks ago uh, about some of their key players. So, yeah, but I, I even think Ukraine might not be an easy game either. Uh, obviously, it's a, a team that you expect to beat on paper, but um, they've shown to be a, a decent side who can who can be quite tough, um, tough to overcome with some decent Premier League players. So. As I said, I think for me, it, it won't be easy. Um, it, but, you know, providing things went as you'd expect, it's just, you're probably looking at, what, Belgium? Belgium in the final. And, uh, yeah, I think that'd be... Probably the, the the winner of the Belgium-Italy game is probably yeah. England's biggest threat. Italy a strange one, aren't they? Because... They, they kind of looked a bit similar to England, albeit or, or be better, to be fair. But just in their last game, I think, I'm trying to think it was against Austria, was it? Austria. Um, they just looked a little bit, I don't know, a little bit flattered, a little bit not quite on it. Needed the extra time, didn't they? So whether you can read too much into that, I don't know. But definitely, you know, Belgium, Italy could be tough. Uh, and you probably expect us to get one of them in the final. Um, because even Spain, I'm not blown away by, to be honest. No, I think I think Spain, again, according to numbers, is actually quite good, you know, when it comes to 
producing shots and attacking that. But there's a bit of a perspective around Spain that they just keep ball, lots of possession, and they do nothing with it. But if you actually look at the numbers, they actually do generate a fair bit in attack. But I think with Spain, they just seem a lot. Again, going back to that whole idealistic thing, um, they don't seem seem adaptable enough for for not how football. They seem too open to maybe suffering from a random moments. Um, and I think England, I'd, I'd just have a bit more faith that England would beat Spain. I think to play that kind of football and win a knockout tournament, you have to have just really perfect players executing that style of play, like Xavi, you know, Iniesta. Mm. Going back to Guardiola's last Champions League win, Lionel Messi. You know, when you're playing knockout tournaments, you have to you have to have this kind of adaptable strategy type thing about you, where you have to be flexible with different approaches and stuff. And I'm not sure Spain have that. Um, Italy probably looked the best coached team in the tournament, I'd say. One thing with Italy, they don't really have that, and this has been mentioned a few times, they don't really have that superstar. They don't really have that that really elite player, that really elite individual who can kind of win a game on his own. Whereas okay, if you look at England, is not doing bad. <laughs> no, no, they've got good players, don't get me wrong. But yeah, Adi's yeah. having a good, a good tournament as well. Insigne is probably the the most applicable to what I've just said. Locatelli's having a great... Uh, Verassi's probably elite. You, you could say that, but I still can't see him being elite to the extent that he wins a game in the final third. Whereas if you look at England, you know, they've got loads. They've got Jaden Sancho, Harry Kane, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish. England have got tons. Um... So it's it's gonna be interesting to see how it plays out. Um going into the quarterfinals now. So yeah, I mean we'll pretty much wrap up there, I think. Um one final question, Dave. Do you think Trent would have played yet? <laughs> <laughs> um I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, I, I I don't know either because if you kind of have a look at the the the, the right side as wing back, right back profiles he's used. They have similarities in how they play. You know what I think. Walker's played, James has played, Trippy has played. I think what what Trent is so good at um, is is how we how it kind of works at Liverpool. And I haven't seen how based on what what how Southgate's lines up. I'm not sure how that would have translated uh, in terms of featuring for England. I just don't know. I think he might have got minutes on the pitch, but I don't think he would have been a consistent starter. Uh, at all, I think it would have been a Henderson like um, role in the squad. It'll be interesting to see if um, if Henderson starts getting a few starts actually, because uh, obviously, given his experience in these massive games, he's played quite a few finals now for Liverpool. Obviously, he's played in big domestic games as well against the likes of Manchester City. He's won a Premier League, so when you get to that level. You're a bit more certain that Henderson will turn up compared to like a Calvin Phillips who has played to a solid level, but not that real where your nerves are shaking going into the game and all that sort of stuff. So it'd be interesting to see if, if Henderson starts getting a bit more game time. But yeah, we'll wrap up there anyway. So different sorts of podcasting usual. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed that one. Um if so, we'll you know we'll keep track on England, see where we get to in the tournaments and if we get to the final. Especially, you know, we've got to do some sort of preview there, maybe. Um, as always, we'll try to focus on Liverpool content, but given the Euros is on, 
we can't really look past England, especially when there's a historic win over Germany happening. Mm. So, mm. yeah, Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. Yeah, thanks, mate. Cheers, everyone. And we'll be back next week. Cheers. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.